1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Welcome to Censored, the podcast that actually analyzes censorship instead of shouting censored every five minutes. I'm Aoife Fritnach, a historian locked out of the cosy archives who's feeling swamped by real-time history. Relevance in a research topic is extremely overrated. And because I'm a contrary wagon, I'm doing bonus episodes that contradict the fundamental premise of the podcast. These are the uncensored books. Believe it or not, there were a few. This is the last episode of 2020, So thanks for listening and supporting me on patreon.com slash censored pod. Please, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, or even better, tell a friend or two about the pod. Personal recommendations make all the difference. For this bonus episode, subtitled in my head, how the fuck did he get away with it? I've chosen The Fugitives. I learned about this book when talking to Dr. Declan Kavanagh in Season 3, Episode 8, For Broderick's earlier book, The Pilgrimage. There's lots about Broderick and his work in that episode, in particular his sexual identity. Declan persuaded me that reading Broderick's female characters as closeted gay men made a lot of sense, so that's an approach I will take here. The Fugitives is told from the point of view of Lily, an Irish emigrant to London, who has unexpectedly returned to visit her family. In a thinly disguised version of Athlone. She came home to find out if her elderly aunts had any news of her brother Paddy, who she suspects of shooting a British government official in London. Paddy, who's on the run, does show up, and he is accompanied by Hugh Ward, a dark, charismatic man with a deep, sexy voice. The back and forth between Lily, Paddy, and Hugh, as they await police detection, might be the plot. But the star of this book is its atmosphere. Tense, claustrophobic, rain-sodden and fearful, this is Irish noir at its absolute best. In fact, I wonder if it isn't the first of its kind. It may not be a crime novel, but it has lots in common with noirish contemporary Irish fiction. I'm very surprised The Fugitives hasn't been made for TV. It has it all. Violence, sex and subterfuge so why in hell wasn't it banned? When I looked at my censorship bingo card, it got 5 out of 25. I ticked sex work, infidelity, politics, crime and blasphemy. That is a pretty low score, but many books with similar scores were banned. How did The Fugitives escape? Before I try to answer that, I'm going to share the smut with you because it is wildly entertaining. If you want to tipple alongside the book, you have to have whiskey. This is a book soggy with damp. The characters drink copious amounts of whiskey to stay warm in a world without central heating. If you can read this wrapped up warm while it rains outside, it's extra enjoyable. For a book set within an Irish house, there's surprisingly little tea. Even the old ladies are drinking genteel glasses of port. The first moment I would class as bannable content is on page 15, where Lily reveals her extramarital live-in relationship as a shameful, hidden, private thing. I read it thinking she's got a boyfriend she doesn't want to talk about, and that's a perfectly good explanation. She doesn't live in Ireland anymore, but she hasn't abandoned the emotional baggage around sex that she carried with her to London. This is the piece on page 15 where Lily talks about her boyfriend Tom. She had spent the afternoon with Tom and she had not tidied the flat after he had gone. His dressing gown was still thrown across the armchair in the living room, his slippers and pyjamas in the bathroom, one of his suits hung up in the kitchenette for pressing. Okay, so there's no direct reference to sex there, but it's clear as day where that sort of domestic intimacy comes from. It's quite a coded way to talk about sexual closeness. But there's more. On page 31, the real truth about Lily's relationship with Tom is revealed. She had met him in a pub off Grosvenor Square where she was working as a barmaid. He began to drop in regularly every Tuesday evening. His name was Tom Prescott. He lived in Southampton, owned a shoe factory and came up to London every week. Looking back on it, she was surprised at how easy it had all been, how matter-of-fact. She hated her work, had few friends, and was desperately lonely. When he suggested that she give up her job and move into a flat, she was already far too dependent on him to refuse, even if she had wanted to. She had never thought of herself as his mistress. Set up in a comfortable flat, given an allowance, taken care of, made love to, kept. The whole relationship was too quiet, too banal for descriptions of that kind. Illicit passion was quite different from this solid companionship, she told herself. It was easy to stifle her doubts by playing down any hint of violent emotion. So they're not just lovers. He's a married man and she's his mistress. I love how this relationship is set out. It was nothing dramatic or grand, but it had to be a secret – to preserve Lily's sense of self and her standing with her family. There's great tension between this humdrum boring affair and the danger Lily has placed herself in by taking part. And this secret leads to a fateful decision. When she meets her brother, panicked and scared on the street, she lies about where she lives because she cannot bring him to a flat full of Tom's clothes. From that decision stems the rest of the plot it really does start with sex. I'm pretty gobsmacked this wasn't banned in 1962 or later, because being a kept woman is a fairly challenging storyline for the censors. Then Broderick piles it on. Lily has lost her faith and religion, as she explains on page 32. She had already given up practising her religion before she met Tom. The rigid set of hieractic beliefs accepted without thinking, without any real conviction, because they were the custom of the country, had fallen apart at the first blast of foreign wind. The world was very different from what she had been led to expect. When the religious facade crumbled, most of the old, worthy standards had dissolved with it. She was left with nothing but an empty day-to-day pragmatism and a vague sense of guilt, which made her unwilling to go home to face her aunt. The bitterness and cynicism of that paragraph is so attractive. But it gets even better, or worse, depending on your moral stance. Because on page 32 she also reveals this. There had been incidents when Tom was unable to visit her, which left her ashamed. Men picked up casually in a bar or a cinema brief bouts of rough sensuality, followed by self-reproach and a sharp sense of guilt. She thought of taking a job again, but she had become too accustomed to idleness. The rigid discipline of a timetable appalled her. So Lily is a godless, sexually promiscuous woman living a secret life in London. It's fabulously transgressive that she doesn't really want to reform herself either. She has moments of regret, but they're not even strong enough to be real guilt. Lily is fundamentally happy in her lazy life as a mistress to a boring man. And the reference to picking up men in a cinema reminds me strongly of The Pilgrimage. In that book, the female character Julia had similar casual sexual encounters, which Declan persuaded me could be read as cruising by gay men. I think the same applies here. Lily's double life can also be interpreted as that lived by a closeted gay man. Perhaps that's why Lily's transgressions are piled up one on the other. Multiplying her sins emphasises the extent of her concealment and the importance of maintaining that secrecy. If we continue to read Lily as a gay man, the strangeness of the relationship between herself, her brother Paddy and Hugh Ward really does make sense. Hugh is a menacing figure who's supposed to be keeping an eye on Paddy to ensure that he doesn't crack under the strain of being on the run. But Lily believes he's a Svengali who seduced Paddy into joining the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA for short. All three are trying to act normally while acutely conscious of the police hunt for the gang. They are hiding in plain sight, pretending to be visiting from London, even though Lily and Paddy haven't been home for years. To keep up appearances they go to Mass but this leads inevitably to probing questions from an acquaintance. What else is Mass for but the opportunity to gossip and gather information? Hugh takes charge and gives them a proper cover story. He says he's Lily's fiancé. It's a perfectly plausible explanation but it sends an already nervy Paddy over the edge. When they get back to the house there's a huge scene in the parlour. Paddy is hysterically angry, Lily is confused and terrified in equal measure and Hugh is trying to keep control over everyone. Paddy's anger is pretty odd and random if you don't take the queer subtext into account. He accuses Lily of being jealous of him which doesn't really add up unless you accept that Hugh and Paddy are in a relationship. They're both wearing the same ring a telling detail revealed earlier on page 33. Prior to this scene, there has been the feeling that Lily has been interrupting the two men whenever she entered the room. All that suppressed tension rushes to the surface in this chapter in chapter 10, where Paddy loses his rag over the fake engagement. And it culminates in this incredible scene on page 55. Ward put his hand on the boy's shoulder but Paddy shook it off roughly and backed away from him unsteadily waving his glass from side to side. A drop of whiskey ran down his chin and fell into his collar. Go on give her a kiss you he exclaimed. What sort of a man are you? Don't you like women? Paddy stop it. Lily attempted to take the glass out of his hand but he snatched it away and held it high above his head. She turned toward, but he was looking out the window. Suddenly Paddy put down his glass on the table and snapped lilies out of her hand. Before she realised what he was doing, he had seized her by the arms, imprisoned her in his arms and kissed her on the lips. She struggled desperately to escape, but his hands were surprisingly strong and the slight body pressed against her own was as hard as steel. She felt her shoulders grasped by other hands and she was pulled back violently out of her brother's embrace. Hugh released her gently and stepped between her and her brother. "'You see, Hugh, it's quite easy. Almost any man can kiss a woman. Why don't you try sometime?' His voice broke off in a little gurgling sob. Ward had grasped him by the throat and was shaking him viciously, forcing him back against the sofa. "'Right, so that was mental as fuck.' brothers don't generally make points by snogging their sisters. How on earth wasn't this censored? It's very strange, especially when you think about some of the innocent books that were banned. If that taunt about liking women wasn't an obvious reference to homosexuality, I don't know what is. This is a complex love triangle with layers of concealment and awareness battling against each other. Is the Lily character always better read as a gay man or a cishet woman? I think it kind of oscillates. She's very gendered as a woman when the lads want to mansplain politics, which they often do, and it's just as dull as you can imagine. But then Lily's ways of finding casual sex don't really work for a cishet woman. And it's her casual encounter with a stranger on the streets of Athlone that really boggles the mind. Lily is worried about being followed, as the police net is closing around Hugh and Paddy. When a man follows her, she panics and tries to lose him in the narrow streets of the town. And this is from page 133. It was not a large town, and in a few minutes she found herself back among the high-walled gardens, over which the budding branches of the plane trees nodded and whispered like senile old men. Suddenly in front of her she saw a flickering blue light set high up on the wall. It was a small, glass-covered shrine of the Blessed Virgin, in front of which an electric lamp was kept perpetually burning. She knew now where she was. This shrine had been erected by the woman's sodality in memory of one of their members, who had been shot there by the Black and Tans during the Troubles. A narrow alley running along under it led she knew back to the main street, She turned into it and hurried along towards the remembered archway opening out onto the street but it was no longer there. The alley was now a dead end. A high concrete wall had been thrown up beyond which new buildings large black and menacing had been erected. She was trapped. Honestly it's not often the Virgin Mary appears in Irish novels but here she is.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: The Virgin Mary and, in the background, the holy martyrs of the Revolution will be witnesses to what happens next. Lily thinks that the horrible secret of Paddy's crime is about to be discovered. But it's much more prosaic than a plainclothes policeman, and also much more shocking, and we're still on page 133 here. Then out of the darkness she heard the obscene words, thick, breathless, and almost pleading. The man's voice was not unpleasant, but he did not speak in the familiar flat accent of the town. He did not come any nearer. They stood face to face a few paces from each other, silent, tense, numb. Then he spoke again, And she knew that Paddy and Ward had nothing to fear. The man's voice was trembling now, low and lilting and cracked, as he mouthed the obscene words, which were strangely at odds with the tone in which he uttered them. Ugh! Whatever he says seems extra repulsive because it isn't written down. This is really creepy. And then on the next page, 134, Broderick writes the most confusing sex scene I've ever read. I won't hurt you, the man whispered again. Honest, I won't. Yes, yes, I know. Even now at the edge of darkness she made one last effort, the effort of justification. I know better than he is, she thought. This is the way I am. Please, he whispered. Please. Suddenly she reached out and touched him and the darkness closed in. Oh, you're wonderful, she murmured. No, I won't hurt you. No, no, not like that. Darkness engulfed her, blotting out even the unattainable sky. Yes, yes, that's it, like that. You're wonderful, wonderful, I never thought. Please, please, he muttered. Now, 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 tell me. Suddenly she was slumped against the wall and he was gone. At the end of the alley, the blue light flickered. There was no way home without passing under it. Clutching her fur coat tightly about her neck, she crept towards the light. High up in its glass prison, the white figure shone, with head inclined and outspread hands. Some of the man's spittle had fallen on her collar, and she felt it press against her neck, cold and damp, as out of the past, conjured up by the shining figure, the words of the litany came terrifyingly back into her mind. Tower of Ivory, House of Gold, Ark of the Covenant, Gate of Heaven, Morning Star, Health of the Sick, Refuge of Sinners, Comforter of the Afflicted, Help of Christians. Wow, there is a lot going on here. Is this an assault or is it consensual sex? Lily goes from terrified to weak with lust in the blink of an eye. Does she regret it? or feel guilty afterwards. Sex under the perpetual light of a Holy Mary grotto is the dictionary definition of too much. Decades before the tragedy of Anne Lovett dying in childbirth in a Marian grotto, Broderick put the virgin and transgressive sex together like this. It's insane and I loved it. And that's just the OTT sex. There is pure black comedy in the elderly ladies of the book, who are so funny. They're almost wasted on the page. They need to be brought to full-throated life on stage or screen. Lily's aunt, Mrs Hetty Fallon, hosts her friend Mrs Lagan every Friday for a glass of port and a digestive Bicky. The two widows are frenemies in the best passive-aggressive style. Their competitive bitchiness is completely delicious, and you have to read it for yourself. But there's also hilarious double entendre that took my breath away. Now, maybe it's because my mind is in the gutter, but the first time Mrs. Lagan sat in Mrs. Fallon's parlour, on page 25, I nearly died from shock at this exchange. The mulled port was already waiting on the table with one digestive biscuit beside each glass. Since it was Friday, Mrs Lagan took off her gloves and sniffed her fingers delicately. "'Do I smell of fish?' she asked. "'I hate the smell of fish,' said Hetty in her oblique way. "'I don't really smell of it at all,' retorted Mrs Lagan, as she had every Friday for the last twenty years when Hetty made her remark. "'It's just that I think I do. You know I have a very delicate nose.' The least odor, and I think I'm contaminated. I can't bear anything offensive. It's a terrible way to be, considering the dirt of other people. All right, so I'm crude, but I can't be the only person who choked on their whiskey when they read that. This finger sniffing is part of the Friday ritual, and for a filthy-minded person like me, is hysterically funny. Good Catholics observe a meat fast on Fridays, so fish is the main meal. But honestly, I think Broderick was being very bold here. And I felt justified in my suspicions when I read on, and this is from page 29. Paddy was a charitable man, said Hetty, torn between self-pity and the reflection on her husband's consideration for her. At a buggery with charity, exclaimed Mrs. Lagan, hammering on the table, almost upsetting her glass of port. What kind of charity is that, will you tell me? The old lady had picked up her surprising swear word years ago without the faintest idea of its meaning. Her sudden use of it at heated moments regularly stunned the numerous pious societies of which she was a member. How delicious is that? Please someone make a TV series of this book. I need this in my life. The great actresses of Ireland deserve some scenery-chewing roles and if Broderick is making jokes like this about buggery, I think he knew what he was doing with the fish. I hope you can see that it's kind of shocking it wasn't banned. How did it escape the censor? The censorship board wasn't as strict as in the early 1950s, but it wasn't relaxed. High-class literary smut from Iris Murdoch and Edna O'Brien was banned in the 60s. You might recall from season 1 that anti-non-nineteenth-century propaganda about Maria Monk was banned in 1964. The 60s were not a permissive time for literature in Ireland. I suppose the censors could have missed this book. Government systems often make mistakes. They're not perfect. But the system knew about Broderick from the ban they had placed on the pilgrimage the year before. And if The Fugitives was missed in 1962 there is no reason it couldn't be banned in subsequent years. It's just odd. So I'm going to try an educated guess, or just claim that my shy talk is proper historic context. I think it all comes back to the IRA men Hugh and Paddy. From the point of view of the state in the 1960s, these are the wrong kind of IRA men. Insurrectionary violence founded the state, but since the 1920s, The IRA in various iterations have never again secured the cooperation and support of the majority of the population. Since 1922, government after government has suppressed IRA activity as a threat to the state. Now I'm talking about the 26 county state here. Things get a bit more fuzzy in Northern Ireland. For example, Irish government ministers were supplying guns to the IRA in the north in the late 1960s. Broderick has Hugh voiced the anomalies about violence in Ireland. Hugh admits that his violent actions are deemed wrong because they're carried out by a minority, but if everyone backed him it would be right. This moral pragmatism is at the heart of Irish politics. The violence before the treaty was signed was justifiable, but once the majority decided to accept that treaty, they performed an about turn. Government violence under British rule was evil, but Irish government violence protected the state. To be very simple about it, the IRA before the treaty were the goodies and the IRA after the treaty were the baddies. Other historians are preparing to jump me now, I can hear ye shouting it's more complicated than that. Now I'm not saying those IRAs are always the same organisations with the same politics or people, but they do share the same foundational principle. Violence is a legitimate way to change the political conversation. That's always been a problem for the Irish state. If the government is the result of successful insurrection, how can you claim violence against the state is illegitimate? Luckily, people are very good at mental and moral gymnastics. The key is to believe the IRA who won independence were right, but all the others since were misguided. Being ruthless also helps. Irish governments in the 40s and 50s imprisoned violent republicans without trial. In 1961, the Special Criminal Court was established so that political criminals could be tried by judges instead of juries. All of this is done to make sure we never draw comparisons between the IRA heroes of the 20s and the criminal IRA ever since. Funnily enough, this very week, there's a minor political spat over a politician doing just that. Sean Sinn Féin TD, Brian Stanley tweeted that the IRA killing 17 British soldiers in 1920 was the same thing as the IRA killing 18 British soldiers in 1979. Cue lots of faux outrage and spectacular attempts to avoid cognitive dissonance. In Ireland, the debate over what is or isn't a just war never ends. So that's the political context around Broderick's book which could allow the establishment to read it as a conservative, pro-state narrative. The Fugitives isn't set in Ireland under British rule, but Ireland is a self-governing nation-state. The police are thee, not the Royal Irish Constabulary. If Broderick had set this in the 20s, it could have been incendiary. But republicanism in the late 1950s is a very different beast to insurgents in Ireland under British rule. Paddy and Hugh are the bad IRA, the wrong kind of Republicans. They are not fighting for Irish freedom because that has already been achieved according to the state. Paddy's actions in London are a threat to the legitimate democratic state which is desperate to hunt him down and punish him and the censors are an important part of that Irish state. I don't think they minded when Broderick showed how toxic and fake Hugh's violent political nationalism was. It's grand for the establishment if fictional IRA men spout anti-religious rhetoric that would alienate many citizens. Lily's behavior shows what type of person sympathizes with these violent men. That all three characters break desirable heterosexual norms could be read as a bonus. In political terms, the sex scene by the light of a shrine to the heroes of the revolution is grotesque. Who could think well of the 1960s IRA after reading this tale of sexual depravity? So maybe all that transgressive content could be seen as upholding political structures of power. I don't think Broderick intended this, by the way. He was just doing his thing, gleefully filleting the oppressive culture of small-town Ireland. For the author, I suspect that Lily's alleyway sex was about ungovernable desire and repression, not the IRA. There's more than just politics and sex in this book. The analysis of death in Irish culture is excellent and very quotable. And you can almost taste the damp, from eaves swollen with rain to wallpaper blossoming with damp stains. There are macabre and grotesque elements plenty in this book. It's just a riot. Banned or not, I still think it's scandalous. You could say it exploits many tropes about Ireland. An obsession with sickness and dying. Damp and rain. The cold. The biddies and their passive-aggressive enmities. But it's so well done. There is bitterness and clear-eyed knowledge. The combination of claustrophobia and melodrama is great fun. Unfortunately, The Fugitives is out of print at the moment, so you'll have to source it in libraries or second hand. And this is the last episode of 2020, a year I'm not even going to bother to sum up. It's been a wild ride. This podcast has been the highlight of my year. It's kept me sane when I thought I would go off a cliff. Apparently, searching for magic cock tropes is a great recipe for mental stability. So thank you for keeping me company, for listening, subscribing to Patreon, rating and reviewing, telling your friends, tweeting about it, all of it, your sound out. I will be back in January with season four, beginning with Madonna's infamous sex book from 1992. Wait till I tell you the story of how Madonna was banned in Ireland. Lads, it's fucking hilarious. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy.